Thank you to Wildcare and Wildlife Acoustics for sponsoring the Bat Chat podcast. Can you hear that? We can. Wildlife Acoustics creates the world's leading bat acoustic monitoring tools, designed to help scientists make impactful discoveries for our biologically diverse planet, turning this into this. Visit wildlifeacoustics.com to learn more. Wildcare are committed to supporting the ecology industry and are specialists in supplying a large range of monitoring, conservation and habitat management products, as well as equipment hire and service and repair. With a large range of products coupled with friendly and expert help and advice, Wildcare is a favourite supplier for ecologists nationwide. Go to wildcare.co.uk to see the full range and quote BatChat at the checkout for 10% off all bat detectors and bat boxes. Hello and welcome to Bat Chat. This is the podcast where we bring you the stories from the world of bat conservation. We're continuing Series 3 with a couple of guests this week. If you're a regular listener of the show, it's great to have you back with us. And if this is your first time in joining us, welcome along. Episodes in this series are being released every second Wednesday, and this is the penultimate episode of Series 3. And you can join the conversation online using the hashtag BatChat. That's all one word. As we meet each of our guests in this series, you'll hear from people working to make a difference in the world of bat conservation. People who care about individual species, people who concentrate on one particular part of bat ecology, and people who are working with bats at a landscape scale. As well as keeping up with the latest news and hearing from people in the world of bats, we hope that you'll be inspired to get involved because bats need our help. I'm Steve Rowe, a trustee of the Bat Conservation Trust. I've been involved in bat conservation for over two decades, and in that time I've come to learn that there are some really great projects and stories out there. One of the best-known projects in the world of bats, and indeed mammals, is the National Bat Monitoring Programme, or NBMP. To start us off, we join Jill Layup from Derbyshire Bat Group, who is in the middle of undertaking a roost count for the NBMP, and she explains what she's up to as dusk falls in the Derbyshire Dales. So Jill, how long have you been doing bat work? So long I don't think I can remember. <laughs> <laughs> I got involved in the start through a colleague at work. We both worked for the Derbyshire Wildlife Trust. And Sue wanted to go along to become a volunteer bat roost visitor and asked me to go along with her. So I said I would, not really knowing what I was letting myself in for, to be honest. Anyway, I passed the training and then started doing bat roost visits and talking to people. And I suppose that's the thing that I really like doing, is talking to householders about bats. So what's the roost we're counting tonight? It's a BLE, a brown long-eared roost. Uh, there seems to be a lot of other bats around to confuse matters. I'm going for that one. And we're counting it for the roost count for the National Bat Monitoring Programme and trying to see if the, uh, the number of bats roosting here is stable from year to year. 
I mustn't click the next one because <laughs> I've already clicked one too many. And how many bats is there, no is there normally in this roost? There's normally getting on for 200. Right, I'm not counting that one. At the moment, I've counted five. But they do come out from all over the place, so I'm not expecting to count all of them myself. Yeah, I was going to say, we've got four of the volunteers here tonight. It's quite a nice mild evening. There's rooks just gone back to copse of trees over in, over the other side of the house. And you're right, Steve, it is mild. There's a lot of insects around, a lot of bat bait around. Yeah. A lot of things for us bats to eat, for the bats to eat. What's the detector you're using there? It's a Magenta Bat 5, which I like because it's got a big digital display, which people with failing eyesight can read in the dark. <laughs> Good for anybody. Good for anybody in the dark. So how many of these roost counts do you normally get involved with during the summer then? Uh, the roost counts I do, well, including this one, three. I do one in Cromford that's um, a soprano pipistrelle roost and it's got over 200 bats in it on the two counts that we've done this year. Uh, there's one in Matlock Bath that uh, has got about 150 bats. Again, it's a soprano roost. Yeah. And what I found quite interesting was that the Cromford one, there's only one place that the bats come out of and it took a good hour for all the bats to come out. Yeah. Whereas the, um, the Matlock Bath one, it seemed to be quite a leaky roof and there was probably five places that they were coming out. It was all over in half an hour. <laughs> you know, hooray, cup of tea, off to bed. <laughs> so, yeah, it was quite uh, quite interesting how they all... Yeah, I mean, they must be lining up in there ready to come out when there's only one exit. That's never done. It's tricky, that second one. I suppose it did drop out there, didn't it? Yeah, it did, yeah. So the rooks have gathered and now moved off to somewhere else. The night roost, I guess. Oh, hello. Where did that come from? That was one of, that was one of your... Yeah. It's all happening now. Yeah. I'm beginning not to trust my eyesight now. <laughs> it's getting into that weird twilight time, isn't yeah. it? So that was Jill undertaking a roost count and at the end of the night the five of us collated our counts and we had 191 brown on geared bats emerge from that house last summer which is a pretty average count for that roost. 
That data, collected by Jill, was then uploaded to the MBMP website, where it was received by the team at the Bat Conservation Trust, which is led by Philip Briggs, who we hear from next. I sat down with Phil in the autumn just over the road from the BCT offices in London at Battersea Park, and amongst the sound of parakeets and waterfowl on the pond, he gives us an insight into what the MBMP does for bat conservation. It's a breezy autumn day, nice sunny morning, and I'm sat in Battersea Park next to a lake with a load of pigeons and various wading birds, and I'm sat with Phil Briggs from the Bat Conservation Trust. Phil, do you just want to introduce yourself to the listeners and say what your job title is and what you do at the Trust? Yeah, I'm the monitoring manager at the Bat Conservation Trust, which mainly involves project managing the National Bat Monitoring Programme, but also other bat monitoring projects that we take on. And I mean, how did you get involved in that? And have you always worked on the MBMP since starting at BCT? Yeah, well, I've been interested in wildlife from an early age. And I remember when I was in my teens, standing by my local ponds, watching bats flying around, and just thinking how amazing they are. And I remember thinking to myself, I wonder how you tell them apart. And if someone had come along and told me that would be my job one day, I I just wouldn't have believed them. But then... um, I started volunteering at the WWT London Wetland Centre and then about 20 years ago I went to my first bat walk and just was immediately hooked and I ordered a bat detector and um, a good friend of mine, Richard Bullock, who was the ecologist at the site, he said, well, you've got a bat detector, you should um, get involved with the bat walks, the bat surveys, so I started doing that. And then a couple of years later um, I started taking part in the National Bat Monitoring Programme um, doing the field survey and the waterway survey. And then late at the end of the summer, um, the opportunity came up to apply for the role of survey coordinator. So I applied for that and I was successful, which was really exciting. Um, I'd been working in publishing up to then, so it was a real career change. And I hadn't even really thought of um, a career in wildlife conservation, even though I was really passionate about it. So it just really fell into place. Um, so I started off as the survey coordinator um, I think about four or five years later, I applied for the role of the projects manager and got that role. And that's just kind of evolved over the years, and it's, I'm now the monitoring manager. So it's now about 18 years that I've been, been working at the Bat Conservation Trust, and all that time it's been on the National Bat Monitoring Programme. So I do kind of feel like I've found my vocation in life. <laughs> I was say, you must know it inside out by now. I had no idea you were in publishing. What, made, what was the career change? Yeah, well, it's funny, I did an English degree, so I'm, I'm not a scientist at all. <laughs> um, so it felt, well, I went into some bibliographic, worked for a bibliographic agency for about five years. But all this time I was volunteering, doing wildlife conservation volunteering. So, you know, it, in a way it was like a sort of logical change but it wasn't really one that I particularly planned you know it's just the one the opportunity came up and I just went for it really. So I mean I'm here to quiz you about the MBMP so for anyone out there who doesn't know what it is can you give us you know know, give us the elevator pitch? Well it's really about discovery I think discovering bats near where you live and really kind of helping us monitor how bat populations are faring across the UK that's a really important thing to do, but it's also a really fun and rewarding thing to do. And we have surveys um, suitable for all levels of experience, so including complete beginners, so you don't have to have any previous experience to take part in in one of our surveys, um, right up to licensed surveyors, 
um, who can who are doing hibernation surveys or can get involved with our trapping projects. So there's a really a, a kind of amazing range of different ways people can get involved. And that was going to say, you mentioned the different surveys there. Can you just tell us a little bit about each of those different survey types? Okay, so we have our beginner level survey, that's the sunset survey. And you don't need any previous experience, you don't need any equipment, um, you don't need a batch detector. If you've got one, you should use one, obviously, but it's designed so that you can actually record what bats you see, or whether you see some bats and other nocturnal wildlife, just by using visual clues. Um, and then we've got the roost counts, so you need to know of a roost that you can monitor. Quite often it's um, householders who've got bats in their property who are doing the counts, or it's kind of bat group members or other bat enthusiasts who've discovered a, a bat roost in their local area. And this simply involves standing outside the roost at dusk, usually in June, for most species in June, and just counting the bats out as they emerge. And then we've got two bat detector surveys, which involve walked transects, the field survey, where you're monitoring four species, um, common pipistrelle, soprano pipistrelle, noctule, and serotene. Although in Northern Ireland, we ask people to monitor lysless bats instead of noctule and serotene, um, just simply because of the different bats that, that they get over there. And then we've got the waterway survey, uh, which involves walking along a one kilometer stretch of waterway, uh, monitoring the Benton's bat. And then in the winter time, we collect data from hibernation sites. So these will be sites that are monitored often by bat groups or other licensed bat workers who are kindly sharing the data with us. And there's a few other smaller projects, but those are the, the core surveys which we, which we really get very high engagement in. Which of those is your favorite? Um, I'm particularly fond of the bat detector transect surveys. I do like going out, seeing, you know, walking these routes. And I get very familiar with my routes as well. I get very, very familiar with the sites, very attached to them. I don't even need to look at the route map anymore because I'm so familiar with them. And actually, when I'm first doing one of these sites, I love looking at the map and just thinking, oh, what am I going to find in all these different places? And um, what I like is sometimes, well, you often find bats at the same spots each time. So some spots are really reliable um, areas for bat activity. Um, but then bats will turn up at more unexpected places. Sometimes there's a spot where I think, oh, I have to stand here for two minutes and I never get any bats here. And then just as I'm telling my survey buddies this, a bat will fly past. So I think along my transects, probably bats have turned up at most of the recording locations over the years. But there's a few where they will always, always reliably turn up. Um, and I even have one, one transect, which is right near where I live. It just involves walking around suburban streets. And my expectations aren't, aren't always very high because sometimes I don't get any bats. So I sort of, challenge, sort of manage my expectations at just my, you know, sort of... Um, you know, sort of threshold of what I think is, is a good result. And if I get one bat, I think, oh, great, I've got one bat on the survey, I've got a result. <laughs> but all the sites are really important, regardless of if you get one bat or no bats or, or lots of bats. This is all, all, all really important data. Because it's feeding into a much larger data Exactly, yeah. 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 You joined 18 years ago. Where did the idea come from? You know, what's the history of the programme? Well, it started in 1996. So that was about seven years before I joined BCT. And it was originally commissioned by the Department of Environment, Transport and Regions. Um, so BCT were commissioned to set up an um, effective 
programme for monitoring bat populations across the UK. And so there'd been, there was sort of bits of evidence that bat numbers have really declined over the previous 50 to 100 years or longer. So data from specific sites such as hibernacula that have been monitored for many years, species undergoing range contractions such as the horseshoe bats, we know their, their range contracted quite significantly mm. historically. Um, lots and lots of anecdotal evidence, so things you'll read in books, you know, sort of anecdotal evidence about, you know, seeing lots and lots of bats in certain locations where we don't see lots of bats nowadays. Mm. So there was quite compelling evidence that bat numbers had really declined. And we knew some of the real factors like timber treatments had really been devastating to, to bats um, roosting buildings where timber treatments had been applied. So there was a real need to get much more kind of concrete evidence um, much more kind of robust data and um, long-term data, kind of geographically widespread data on how bats are faring. So that's that's why the program was set up. And it was really the perfect time because um, up until then, the technology to bat detectors had really been um, not very accessible to volunteers. Um, if you've seen David Atterborough's Life on Earth, there's a bit where he shows a bat detector. It's a great big unwieldy thing, probably cost a fortune. <laughs> So bat detectors have become very much smaller, much more affordable. So they were now in the hands of volunteers. And also around about 1990, there'd been the setting up of the bat groups across mm. the UK. So there was a real growing network of bat volunteers. So it was perfect timing, really. The time was really right to start doing a, a national bat monitoring programme. And I mean, have we got any idea how many volunteers have been involved in the programme over all those different years? Yes. Yeah, so... Um, since the programme began, we've had just under 5,000 individual volunteers submitting data. Wow. And this is us counting the volunteers who submit the data. And if you include their survey buddies, then it's going to be well over 10,000 volunteers who've been, been, been taking part over the years. And we really just couldn't do this without volunteers. It would just be impossible. Um, you know, if we hired people to do that, the, the costs will be astronomical. It would just be totally unfeasible. So... We're completely dependent on volunteers, and it's thanks to volunteers that we're able to track how our bat species are faring. Not all bat species that we've got in the UK are included in the surveys. Why have you chosen these particular species to monitor? Well, it's all down to which species can be effectively monitored by volunteers. So the survey methods, they must be um, easily carried out by a large range of volunteers, so they can't be invasive techniques, they can't be techniques that re require licenses. They need to be techniques that are reasonably simple while still being robust. So, for example, there are roost counts, and that will be mainly uh, species which are commonly found at buildings. So obviously the majority of UK species use trees to a large extent, but um, tree roosts are very difficult to locate, very difficult to monitor. The bats will be switching between roosts on a very regular basis. So it's mainly buildings that are monitored for the roost count, and therefore it's mainly species that are largely found in buildings that are, that are monitored. And then for the field and the waterway survey, it's species that can be identified relatively easily and confidently with a bat detector. So there are five species that's, that we focus on for those surveys. And then of course we collect data from the winter hibernation surveys, um, and that kind of fills in some more gaps in terms of species coverage also gives us complementary trends for some of the species we monitor in the summertime. 
Um, but again, some species are very rarely encountered at these large hibernation sites, which we can actually walk into and see the bats. Um, and some species are obviously very difficult to separate as well. So um, we currently produce trends for 11 species, um, which means there are six species we don't currently produce trends for. But we are developing methods for, for kind of monitoring some more of these species. Oh, tell us more. Go on. Okay, so one a key method is passive acoustic monitoring. So rather than walking around um, identifying bats in the traditional way using a heterodyne bat detector, um, which is obviously very time intensive, and there's a limit to how much monitoring you can ask a volunteer to do at each site. Mm. But obviously it's quite a powerful method when you've got loads of sites across the UK over a long time. But there are still these limitations to what you can do. With passive acoustic monitoring, you're just putting out a static bat detector in a location, leaving it out over potentially several nights. I mean, potentially it could be weeks or even months. So it's collecting data throughout the night, um, every night that it's out, triggering recordings when a bat flies past. And that way you're collecting a huge amount of data. And we, uh, there are a number of automated classifiers uh, which are valuable in that they can help us process huge amounts of data which will be completely impossible to, to look at um, manually. I mean, with our pilot projects, we've <clears throat> been looking at something like, I can't remember, it's certainly terabytes of data, so 35 terabytes of data or something like that. So it's huge quantities of data to work through. The limitation of classifiers is that they can't actually identify every species to a high level of confidence. But um, there are certain species where we can certainly um, get, get reasonably reliable results. So what we'll be able to get from passive acoustic monitoring is sort of complementary data on the species we already monitor, <clears throat> but also data on some additional species. So we're thinking species that can be readily identified that we'll be able to add to things like Barbastel, Lysler's bats. Uh, we'll be able to collect more data on things like horseshoe bats, potentially serotene, although I must admit, I always often struggle with serotene. I, yeah, think, I think classifiers <laughs> often struggle with it a bit as well. So quite often, I think, yeah, there might be a bit more checks needed on, on results when you're looking at things like serotene. But certainly nocturnal and lysless bat, you'll get more data on when they're producing their more, more characteristic calls. The really, you know, the sort of um, holy grail is being able to separate the myotis species, mm. which are really challenging. Um, but certainly naturalist bats, their calls can be pretty distinctive. So you might be able to get some quite robust data on naturalist bats. The other species, I think, remains to be seen how, how reliable classifiers will get at this. I know some people, you know, are pretty sure that certain classifiers are doing this quite well now. But um, I think we need a bit more evidence so that that's, that's doing it. So we'll, we'll be looking at other techniques for um, the myota species, such as, you know, DNA analysis from droppings and that kind of thing. So... And maybe sort of um, looking at um, sort of more sort of targeted trapping surveys for these species carried out by licensed volunteers. And in terms of those passive acoustic surveys, uh, are BCT getting funding together to provide those recorders, or are we expecting volunteers who have access to one of those to use their own? Um, I expect it will be a bit of both. Um, so we do have uh, quite a large number of audio moths. These are the cheapest, smallest passive acoustic recording devices um, so they really are very you know kind of 
a bit of a game changer in terms of being able to do this on a wide scale. Um, but I think we need to sort of really, you know, the protocols are still being worked on, so we need to decide, are we just going to be using one kind of detector or let people use any kind of detector that will do passive acoustic monitoring? Um, yeah, and um, also exploring potential remote sensing. So there's been an amazing project in the Olympic Park using um, kind of installed, they've installed static detectors which are, I think they're solar powered. Oh no, they're not, I think they're running off the power from lamps, I think. Oh, yeah, yeah. I think that's right. And then actually sending the data via Wi-Fi. So they're completely unattended. And that's pretty much probably the, you know, having a series of those around the UK might be the sort of ideal um, method, perhaps. Yeah, but probably um, complemented by people actually putting out their own detectors as well. But um, you know, having a large number of permanent monitoring stations would, would be fantastic, I think. But these are all things that we're kind of looking into and yeah, we'll see what the next few years show. But this year we're, we're running a, a, a small survey called Nightwatch, which is much more about just engaging people, um, sending them audio moths to put in their own gardens, um, because we found that um, that's a real motivation for people to take part. People really want to know what's in their backyards or in their local area. Um, perhaps that's much more motivational to some people than being given a randomly allocated square, which is better for robust monitoring. So this is kind of a separate passive acoustic monitoring program, which is more about engaging people, particularly urban audiences, underrepresented audiences, people who, who we haven't been so good at reaching out to, I think, and engaging. So volunteers go out and have great fun and collect all their survey data. How, once they've then sent you their data, how do you translate those results into statistical trends, which we're then able to tell us how bat populations are faring? Okay, well, um, the process is quite simple for us. We send it to our statistician, Steve. <laughs> <laughs> so um, that's a simple answer. And Steve has been involved in the MBMP right from the start. And yeah, he's, he's a brilliant statistician, so you know, he does, does great work uh, on the trends and all sorts of other statistical projects. So Steve uses generalized additive models, which produces smooth trends. And this approach is quite robust against random variation between years. So if you get one quite anomalous year, it's going to get smoothed out. So not going to suddenly show that bats are suddenly, numbers are suddenly shot up or suddenly declined quite dramatically. Uh, a real key component of the analysis um, is the um, looking at covariates that might influence the number of bats that are recorded. So we ask volunteers to record things like the weather conditions, the temperature, what kind of bat detects they're using, um, all these sorts of things. Because these are all things which will can have an influence on the number of bats you record. So obviously weather conditions, that's, that's an obvious one, temperature. But bat detector is really important because different models of bat detect have different microphones which have different frequency responses. So one detector might um, detect a certain species from a, from a greater distance than another detector. So that's going to have a bit of an influence on how many bats are recorded. Mm. And then Steve analyzes these covariates to see which ones are having a statistically significant influence. And then he can adjust the trends to minimize these biases. But in fact, some of the, the results from this are interesting in themselves. So, for example, um, we started looking at Met Office data um, in relation to the hibernation survey data, so looking at minimum temperatures in the days leading up to the survey. 
So obviously the volunteers will collect, record the temperature on the day of the survey. But what we found was that um, the temperature, the minimum temperature up to three days before the hibernation count uh, was statistically significant for certain species. And this uh, seems to indicate that there is a bit of a lag in bats responding to changes in temperature while they're in torpor. So it turns out that um, temperature a few days before is actually a really important thing to factor in because that has quite a big influence on how many bats you record on the day. You've got enough stats to be able to do it that much, haven't you? <laughs> and what's the picture so far? You know, how are our bat populations doing? Well, there are some encouraging signs. So a few species are showing increases. Um, so, for example, the, the uh, great horseshoe bat and lesser horseshoe bat, uh, which is brilliant news because, as we know, they, they underwent huge range contractions historically. And I think it really shows uh, the the value and effectiveness of very intensive conservation actions. So there are a number of major roosts which are very well protected and have been enhanced and modified and for the bats. And also landscape scale work, the sort of landscape around the roosts. Um, interestingly enough, though, um, there is some evidence that horseshoe bats might be benefiting from milder winters, mm. which might um, kind of enhance their overwinter survival. And I know they, they are quite, can be quite active in the winter, so they might get quite good, still get, get some quite good foraging in milder winters. Also, common pipistrelle uh, is showing a, quite a strong increase. And I guess because it's a more adaptable species, that might be one reason why it kind of responds quite rapidly, perhaps, to any conservation measures. But it's quite interesting when you compare it to the soprano pipistrelle, which is more of a habitat specialist. So that's showing a slight increase, but not the, 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 the sort of... Uh, more obvious increase of, of the, the common pipistrelle. So there does seem to be quite a sort of logical reason to me why, why you'd see that difference between the two species. But the challenge is really that um, there are some species where we just don't have data to, to be able to tell how they're doing. And um, most of these are real habitat specialists, so woodlands habitat specialists um, or kind of unimproved grassland specialists like the grey-longed bat. And when you've got habitat specialists, these are obviously the most vulnerable species. So, you know, that is, that is a gap in our monitoring, which we're looking to address through these, these additional survey techniques we're, we're looking at developing. So you've just said it varies between species. Does it vary between regions? You're able to tell that from the data? Yes. Yeah, so to some extent, we're able to see this. Um, we produce country level trends where we have good enough sample sizes we don't have good sample sizes for all species at the country level, but where we can, we, we produce these separate country level trends. And you do see slight differences between them. Um, in, in our light, latest results for brown-longed bats from the hibernation survey, we can see there are slight differences between countries. So in England, I mean, it, it's kind of a stable trend. I mean, there's a bit of a downward slope. Uh, so the, the current value is below the below the baseline figure but um, because of the confidence intervals where it's not actually a statistically significant decline if it carried on doing that for some more years it might be but things do fluctuate so we'll, we'll see what happens um, Scotland looks a bit more stable um, but then interesting for Wales there's a slight significant increase so we're seeing slightly different patterns between between these countries and it really shows the importance of being able to look at country differences and regional differences 
because um, a positive trend at the UK level might not necessarily be, be the case at a country or regional level. So it's really important that we can see the, these differences. And that makes it so important that we can enlist more and more volunteers because the more volunteers, then the more sites being monitored and the more we can actually do these more kind of regional level breakdowns. Can you tell us about some of the notable roosts or sites which are surveyed each year and do you have any favourites where you look forward to receiving the data from yeah. volunteers? There's one really remarkable site which I've been lucky to be invited along to. So it's the biggest bat roost in the UK. Not only is it the biggest bat roost, but it contains one of our biggest bats and one of our rarest bats as well, the greater horseshoe bat. So typically it has well over 2,000 bats counted in the in the MBMP recording period. So obviously once the young are born, that's gonna go up even more. <laughs> but um, it was an amazing experience helping with the count then. When you think over 2,000 bats and they're great big hefty greater horsey bats, that's definitely the biggest volume of bats I've been anywhere near in my life. <laughs> and so we had three of us, uh, I think a few of us by each roost exit, all doing our best to count these bats emerging, all armed with tally counters. Um, and I must admit, I found myself doing, okay, lots of bats came out at that point, so I did lots of clicks on my tally counter. I'm not quite sure how they relate to each other, but, you know, <laughs> but that was the best I could do. Um, and at the end, the three of us who were counting that exit, um, two of us had moderately similar counts. The third person was way out. <laughs> so we assumed the two of us had moderately similar counts. It was a good ballpark figure. <laughs> but, yeah, that's just an incredible roost, you know, and so it's, you know, we're always quite excited to see what the count is like each year when it comes in. And what would you say to those volunteers who go to their roost and have got actually quite small numbers of bats and they're thinking, oh, is any point in doing this year after year? Yeah. It's really important. I think all the, all the data are really important. Um, and one thing we're finding is that um, what, what quite often happens is that when people start monitoring a roost, there are lots of bats because that's when people tend to notice the bats. And then quite often the roost might split or the bats might go to one of their other roosts for a while so the numbers can, can drop off a bit, even go down to zero for a while. And then people think the bats have gone so they stop counting. But it's actually really important to keep monitoring the roost because when we've seen this pattern, when the roosts have continued to be monitored, the bats often do come back. Um, so it does create a bit of a bias in the roost monitoring if you know we're finishing the data series with a zero count. So it's really important to continue monitoring, um, keep going back each year. So does the data and the results help influence government policy and legislation? Or is it quite hard to get them to take notice of it? Well, certainly, um, you know, taking, getting government to take notice is obviously, obviously a challenging thing. But um, the trends are government official statistics. Uh, which gives them obviously quite a high level of importance in terms of um, data presented to the government. Um, and every year we need to send a briefing to DEFRA 24 hours before the statistics are published. So DEFRA, do you read them? Um, I have actually seen a minister at a conference hold up our State of the UK's bats and quote from it, so that was nice. nice. So that was a nice thing to see. Um, we also produce um, a bat indicator which is an overall trend combining uh, a range of different species. And this is part of the UK biodiversity indicators, which are use, used by the government to report against uh, biodiversity obligations. Um, and then finally, our data are used um, by the country agencies to 
do constituent assessments for SSSI, SAC sites, and also to assess new sites that might qualify for SSSI status. So, um, yeah, there is, they certainly do get used by governments and government agencies. Um, obviously, you know, we lobby a lot for policy changes and that sort of thing, and MBMP data are a real kind of part of our, you know, sort of, um, I guess, weaponry for that. But, um, yeah, you know, it's, that, that's often a challenge. <laughs> and earlier on you mentioned you've looked at how the, the trends of different species are doing against the baseline. Yeah. Where I mean, it's difficult to say because we don't have that historic data, but do we think our bat populations are where they need to be or are they much further reduced than what they used to be historically? I know it's a difficult question to yeah. answer. Yeah, well, I think, you know, there's certainly quite compelling evidence that bat numbers were much higher, say, 100 years ago or more. And what we tend to say is we see these increases and we say, you know, it's this is evidence that these bats are showing recoveries after long-term declines. But we feel it's likely that these numbers are much lower than they were in the past. And then some species aren't showing increases. So, for example, the Benton's bat is showing a very stable trend, which is obviously, you know, the least you could hope for. Mm. But it's not showing signs of a recovery. And um, sort of quite a, a, you know, sort of like a personal bit of, bit of anecdotal evidence which struck a personal chord with me was I was reading Gilbert White's Natural History of Selborne and he actually talks about he actually went outside his <laughs> the county of Hampshire and went on a boat ride along the Thames in Richmond where I live yeah and he talked about the huge number of bats he saw and it's still a pretty good site for bats but it sounds like he was seeing way more bats than I do nowadays so yeah you know it's just these bits of evidence where you think oh yeah there must be much more bats around there and there's another um, bit of writing which mentions swarms of bats around St. Paul's Cathedral, which you just don't see now. So, you know, there's all these bits of evidence which show that, you know, if you went back inside, you'd just be seeing vast numbers of, of bats. But a really exciting development is that genetic studies are revealing um, kind of sort of information about past population changes. Mm -hmm. So this is something we're really keen to explore a lot more because this could really reveal a lot about um, kind of changes in different species populations over the years and maybe give us much more um, kind of concrete evidence about the, the sort of level of declines over years. So that's quite an exciting new development, I think. So you made these reports public each year. Where can people get hold of the latest reports and maps? This is all on our website. So if you go to bats.org.uk, click on our work at National Bat Monitoring Programme, you'll find the latest results and all sorts of information about how to get involved, information about the different surveys, uh, training, online resources. I was going to say, and people can sign up online. It's really easy, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and we've got online recording as well. So you can activate an online recording account, submit your data online, and then you can see summaries of all the data you've submitted in the past, download all your raw data. Um, so it's, it's quite a nice system, um, as well as submitting your data, you actually keep ownership of your data as well. When I was researching questions for this podcast on the train down here, I was looking at the maps and I went, there's only one roost count for brant bats in the whole UK. <laughs> yeah, there are some species where you have very small numbers of roosts being monitored. And that's always going to be challenging for certain species where they're not found in buildings so often. Um, but it's good to have these all because it's all really useful data. And, just, 
even if we can't produce species population trends because we don't have a good enough, good enough sample size, um, if the volunteers tick the box saying they're happy for this, then the data will go onto the NBN Atlas. So that can be really valuable for informing, for example, local planning or research or whatever. So all the data we get, you know, will have at least one use, will have no doubt have multiple uses, um, you know, over time, including, you know, being included in PhD research, research projects, which kind of discover valuable new information about bat populations. Um, so, yeah, it's the, the tr producing trends is the core use of the data, but, you know, we get so much more value out of it than that. Phil Briggs, it's been great having you on the show. Thank you very much. Okay, you're welcome. A big thanks to both Jill and Philip for coming on the show. That's almost it for this week. I really hope you've enjoyed it. If you take a look at the show notes, you'll find links to more information about the National Bat Monitoring Programme and how you can get involved yourself this summer. As Philip said, there are surveys on there that you need no prior experience of to take part. As you'll hopefully now know, we are running Bat Chat's first ever competition during this series. Children's authors Emma Reynolds and Angela Mills have kindly donated copies of their books about bats. Angela has donated a copy of Bobby the Brown on Geared Bats, signed by both Angela and Chris Backham. And Emma has donated a copy of her newly released book, Amara and the Bats. To enter the competition, to win one of these brilliant books, all you have to do is write us a review about this podcast, Bat Chat, and the two winners will be picked at random at the end of this series. Not all podcast apps allow you to leave reviews, so you can find instructions in the show notes of this episode. And please note that we're only able to post the prizes to addresses in the United Kingdom. Thank you if you're one of those listeners who has left us a review. We really do enjoy reading the comments you leave us. The series concludes in two weeks' time on the Nep Rewilding Estate. Thanks for listening. What did you think of this episode? If you can please leave a quick comment about the show in the ratings and review section, we'd really appreciate it. It helps other listeners to discover our podcast.